Amen, amen. If we actually just uh, remain standing, we're going to just drive straight in the Word. So I realize that sometimes you guys have to sit and stand back up, but that's, when you get to my age, I make sounds when I sit and sounds when I stand up, and I don't want you guys to get to that point. So we're going to go straight into Galatians chapter 5 today. If you have your Bibles with you or your phones, you could turn there. We're going to look at verses 19 through 26, and, and we're coming up rapidly um, to the conclusion of our series in the book of Galatians. And so we're going to try to make every passage count. And so verses 19 through 26 will be our text for today, and we're going to talk about, continue to talk about the battle that exists between the spirit and the flesh. And we're gonna see how the spirit conquers the flesh uh, through this text. And so the word of the Lord reads, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. What a great word. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Let's have a seat. So yeah, we've been talking about this battle between the Spirit and the flesh. And in many, in many ways, this feels like an ongoing battle. And, and sometimes maybe you are in this state and it feels like there's no hope, there's no end to it, that I'm just gonna have to wrestle with this over, there's no way to conquer. But that's not where what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that yes, there is a battle, but that battle has a clear and definite outcome. And here Paul outlines what it looks like for a person who has been conquered by the flesh versus a person who has been conquered by the spirit. That, that there's a tangible metric in which you can know whether you have been won over by the flesh or have been won over by the Spirit. And in understanding these, we can see what our heart is actually ruled by. And Paul starts off with the works of the flesh. He lists them out. And these are familiar sins. And I think when we look at the first section of this passage, none of the sins listed here are all that surprising. We know these to be immoral and wrong. You know, selfish desire, sexual immorality, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. These are things that we understand. Idolatry, I mean, even witchcraft. I know some of you might practice that. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad joke. But we see this and we're like, that makes sense. Like, these things do seem like they are sinful things. And one of the interesting things about witchcraft, it's Paul isn't necessarily talking about, you know, like Halloween stuff. But back then, when someone practiced witchcraft, it typically involved a blood sacrifice. That you would have to sacrifice a child or someone in order to appease these false gods. Essentially, by saying something like witchcraft, he's talking about murder, essentially. But what's wrong with these? Obviously, we know that they're wrong, but what do they point to? And what Paul is trying to tell us here is that all of these sins, they point to a deep division. 
A deep division, not only within yourself, but a deep division that these sins cause to the community that we are a part of. And James picks up on this. James says, what causes quarrels and divisions amongst you? It's your passions. It's your flesh. It's your desires at war with one another. That our sins are not simply destructive to ourselves, but they're destructive to the community that we are a part of. And I think this hits on a almost like a lie that we've bought into as a culture. This idea of my sins, the things that I do, they don't impact anyone other than me. What's the big deal? It's not hurting anyone, it's just me. But this discounts the fact, two very important facts. The first thing is, you were designed for community. Can we say community? When God created all the animals and all the plants and all that jazz, and he created mankind. Did he just make Adam? No, he made Adam and Eve. In fact, Adam was there first, and God shows him all the animals. And did he, find, did he fall in love with any of them? Did he look at the elephant and say, that's so beautiful. I will take you as my wife. No, no. None suitable. But it was not good for him to be alone. And so God, poof, knocks him out. Poof makes Eve, sings her line of poetry, bam, love, right? Adam, mankind in our design, we were not meant to be alone. I think we see that a lot, even in this COVID-19 pandemic quarantine area, that this sense of loneliness is a lot stronger than it's ever been. And I think some people, maybe some of us have gotten comfortable in our like isolation, um, but I think we can all agree that deep down inside, Prolonged isolation, it's not good for the mind. It's not good for the spirit. It does something to us. It's like, have your parents ever gone away on vacation? Oh, well, mine, mine have. They're actually leaving again this Thanksgiving. They're leaving us. And it, I remember when I was younger, my parents would tell me to go out of town. I was so happy because I was like, I'm going to do whatever I want, literally whatever I want. I can walk around this house naked if I want to, and no one can stop me. But what happens if your parents are gone for too long? If you ever had a parent, no, you know, go to Korea for three months, six months, a year. What happens when there's a long separation between your family members? What happens? There's that feeling of loneliness, of isolation, of depression. These things start to come on. Why? Because we are built for community. What happens when you don't talk to anyone for a long time? Have you guys ever seen the movie I Am Legend? Thank you. Eric, dude, you're still on fire, man, from Friday. You're killing it. I am legend. It's like this zombie movie, and Will Smith, he's like all alone. And so what he does is <laughs> there's like this video rental place, and he sets up mannequins, and he pretends to talk to them because he's just alone. And believe it or not, that's actually a psychological technique. A psychologist recommend that you do this. If you're ever stranded on an island, to make an object and talk to it. Because there's something debilitating to the human mind when it doesn't have connection. There's something that actually deteriorates about us when we don't have meaningful interaction. And I think that points back to our design, that we were made for community. And that would also mean that when we are in enveloped by the flesh and our sinful desires, that it doesn't just impact us, it impacts those around us. I mean, have you ever been around someone who's just really bitter? Aren't they like the most unpleasant people to be around? 
Have you ever been around someone who's just extremely jealous? They're very difficult to be around. And while we might say, well, I'm bitter, it doesn't impact anyone else, the reality is that comes out in our actions. And when we examine some of these sins, we see that they are supremely destructive to the communities that we're a part of. I mean, hatred. Paul says hatred is an act of the flesh, and hatred comes from anger, anger that spurs from the heart. It's an action, and that when we hate one another, it causes division amongst one another. For example, if I for some reason hated Enoch, all of a sudden I'd be creating two sides, those who hate Enoch with me and those who love him because he's awesome and commendable. Paul also mentions jealousy. Jealousy is a tricky one, right? Jealousy is something that burns. And when you're jealous for someone, you're genuinely unable to be happy for them. You know, we have our seniors who are applying to colleges, and there's a variety of colleges. And, and um, one of our students, they've applied to Emory. But let's say I was also a senior in high school. Even though earlier, someone today, they literally asked me, do you remember high school? Of course I remember high school. I'm not that old. What do you mean, do I remember high school? Of course I remember high school. I'm only 32. But let's say I was also a senior and I applied. And me and this person, we're, we're both trying to get into Emory. And let's say they got in but I didn't. And my heart, it would be filled with jealousy, filled with jealousy, and in that place, could I actually be happy for them? The answer is no, the answer is no. Let's say one of you gets a new car, like a nice new Lexus, and I'm still driving my crappy Honda HRV, and if my heart is filled with jealousy, can I actually take joy in what you are experiencing? The answer is no. Because jealousy, while we experience it individually, it impacts the way we relate to those around us. The same goes for something like selfish ambition. If your life is entirely about selfish ambition, all you care about is yourself. You will consider no one else on your quest to self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction. And the same goes for envy. It's tied very closely with jealousy, isn't it? It's you're actually pained when others are successful. It's not simply enough that I win, but you have to lose. That's what envy is. And when we break down each of these sins, we see why Paul has been saying that, hey, churches of Galatia, you have a problem. That there is deep division within you. And that division, it comes from acts of the flesh. And I think there is a moment that we need to consider the communities that we are a part of, whether that be our family systems, our social systems, or even this church. Have you been experiencing relational division in your life? And if you have, does it relate back to the acts of the flesh? Is the problem not that person, what they said or what they did? But is the issue something within your heart? The fact that there is a portion of your heart that has been enveloped in sin. Because brothers and sisters, make no mistake. If you are a believer, you are called to be Christ-like. I'm called to be Christ-like. And people have offended Jesus throughout his life, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And yet, he didn't act out in the flesh. He acted out in the spirit. And that means that even though wrongs may happen to us, we have a calling to still be Christ-like. And so if it's not about what that other person did, but it's about how we're responding. If there are deep divisions that you're experiencing within your family, 
within your friends, within this church. We need to see if we're being consumed by the flesh. And here Paul gives a very stark warning. He says this, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying those who have been consumed by these sins, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Does it mean that if you commit one of these sins that you're not getting into heaven? What do you guys think? It's, I mean, I think some of us might feel that way. And I know sometimes it depends on the, uh, the, the Sunday school that you grew up in. Um, that, that might determine that to a certain degree. But that's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is that a person, while good works can't get you into heaven, evil deeds surely can keep you out of it. And that there's a difference between someone who falls prey to one of these sins and someone who is dominated by it. There's a difference between sinning and and falling in one of these manners versus being dominated by it. When we look at sins like this, are there sins that you have normalized, that you've become numb to, that you've just grown accustomed to? That may be very well an indication of your heart just being dominated by the acts of the flesh. And Paul gives a warning. And it's a warning to be concerned about our spiritual condition, that there's a gut check happening here. Perhaps for some of us, when we look at a list like this and the acts of the flesh, our normalizing is this idea of be natural. Be you and be natural. But if our natural state is towards these sinful tendencies, then there needs to be a check that happens. Because we need to recognize that these things are inherently destructive to ourselves and to those around us. But there's a second side of this coin, that while Paul talks about the works of the flesh, he also talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Can we say Spirit? Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. See, Paul says that a person who is dominated by the acts of the flesh is because their heart, the root of their heart, desires these sinful things. But what happens if your root, your core, is dominated by something different? Then the idea of being natural, if your root is bad, then you'll naturally produce bad things. But what if you had a different root? Then that means the things that are good, honorable, loving, kind, considerate, and genuine, these will just be a natural byproduct, an instinctual thing that you do. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. What Paul talks about with the fruit of the Spirit is our hearts being as if they were a tree planted by a stream of living water. Paul isn't outlining here ways to try harder. He doesn't outline the fruit of the Spirit and say, all right, this is the area that you need to work harder at. This is the area that you need to try a little bit more at. What he's saying, he's simply stating the facts of what happens to someone when they are rooted in the Spirit of God. Now, earlier we mentioned that someone who is bitter are very difficult to be around with. Have you ever been around someone who's madly in love? Aren't they just like the happiest people in the world? 
Like they just, like they smile at everything. They eat a French fry and like, this is beautiful. I wish I could share this with the one that I love. Like there's, there's like, there's like, they're like consumed by it, right? That, that's all they can see. They, they live life with these rose colored glasses with glossy eyes and that nothing could go wrong because deep in their heart is the sense of love. And it has transformed the way that they view the world themselves. French fries, Netflix, ice cream, the whole nine yards, it's transformed everything. And so what Paul says, when we are dominated by the Spirit, it's not that you're trying harder, but it's simply instinctual. Because your heart's chief desire is no longer for the sinful gratifications of the world, but it's for the Spirit. And that changes everything. We've mentioned this before. For so many of us, our Christian life is about just trying to change little habits. But Paul's not offering a better you program here. What he's offering is a different lifestyle that is brought on by the Spirit of God. So what happens then? What happens to a person whose root is found in the Spirit of God? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. He starts with the word love, which comes from the word agape. And this idea of love in the Bible, it is a selfless affection for one another, a selfless affection, where I choose to love not because of what it does for me, but because what I can give on to you. He talks about joy. And Paul isn't talking about happiness here. You can be happy with food. He's not talking about that. He's talking about contentment. He's, when Paul talks about joy, he's talking about a contentment that is not deterred by circumstances because he's talking about a joy that is found in identity. He also says peace. A person who displays this a fruit of the Spirit is someone who has a very slow fuse. They're patient with one another. They're also kind, constantly ready to help, faithful. They're trustworthy and reliable. They're gentle. They're sweet-tempered, and they have a sweet disposition despite the frustrations of life, and that they display self-control, moderation, and temperance. And sometimes when we see a list like this, we might be tempted just to attain some of these qualities or feel that we need to keep up with these qualities as a part of our Christian act. But let's consider this. We don't grow this fruit on our own. You see, this fruit, all of these attributes, these are simply a reflection of the characteristic of God. And what Paul is trying to show us here is that the deeper that we grow in our intimacy with God, the more and more we display these qualities. Any of you have a dog? How long have you had your dogs for? Five years. Five? Anyone beat five? Eight, eight and a half. Eight and a half. Anyone beat eight and a half? Ten. <laughs> Mic drop. Ten? Anyone beating ten? No? Going once, going twice, again? You ever see um, people who have been with their dogs for so long that their dogs start to look like them? <laughs> right? Where you're like, yeah, that's your dog. <laughs> I spotted that from a mile away. You ever see that? Like, it's almost as if these qualities start to like, come together almost. There's just something interesting about it. Or you see a couple who's been together for a long time? They start to look alike. Have you ever met a couple where you're like, dude, are you siblings? That's weird. That's wrong. 
They're like, no, no, we're not. We've just been together. We're so... they, they start to mold. Aren't you like that with some of your closest friends? You speak the same way. You enjoy the same things. You have similar tendencies. Sometimes you're talking and you don't even finish the sentence, but your friend starts laughing because they know exactly what you're going to say because you've been together for a long time. Right? And I believe this is what Paul is pointing at here. It's not saying I need this characteristic and I'm going to work harder at it. But he's talking about his relational intimacy. That the closer that we get to God, like an owner looking like their pet or two lovers looking more and acting more and more like one another, that's what happens with our relationship with God. That it's not these qualities that we pursue, but it's him. And in loving him more, we put away the works of the flesh, put on the fruit of the spirit, and we start to display these qualities. Because these qualities, in and of themselves, they're not the end game. But it's harmony with God that brings these things. What Paul is essentially saying here is if you want to be a more loving person, stop trying to be more loving. But start being a person who loves God more. If you want to be a more forgiving person, stop trying so hard to forgive, but be a person who understands more deeply what it means to be forgiven by God. If you want to be a merciful person, a generous person, a kind-hearted person, if you feel like you have a temper problem and you need to calm down, don't try to not do those things or to be those things, but understand that your relationship with God will naturally promote those things. Because when we're only after the attributes, we don't care about the giver. We're only concerned about the gift. And brothers and sisters, that is no relationship. And that is not what God is offering here. He's not offering a program for self-improvement. God is not interested in better actions in and of themselves. He offers a deeper relationship. And that's the difference between someone who is in a relationship based on works and a relationship based on grace. And which side of the boat do you find yourself in today? Are you tired in your spiritual life? Perhaps it's because you've been chasing after the qualities. Perhaps it is because you've been chasing after the attributes. When God is saying, here I am. Don't love the stuff more than me. God is not offering a self-improvement program, brothers and sisters. He's offering a relationship with the God who is love. And there are few things in life that will transform you like love does. Yesterday was Saturday night, and I drove to Helen, Georgia to go to this ice cream place. Um, it's called like Mountain Creamery or something. It's got a big cow. But the cow's kind of disturbing because it has his udders, and the udders have veins on it. I'm like, it's too much detail. It's just too much. I get what you were trying to do with the realistic stuff, but just too much detail. But the, the ice cream there is delicious. And I don't really like ice cream, to be honest with you. Please don't crucify me. I'm just not a fan of ice cream. Um, but this ice cream here is real good. They don't have like additives or preservatives or whatever. They milk the cows, they make the ice cream. I don't know how that process works, but it's delicious. And my wife and my son were eating this ice cream. And like, you give Hesse ice cream, he like eats, it's like the greatest thing in the world. You can shut him up for an hour. Um, and we were sitting, it was must have been like six o'clock, seven o'clock, and the sun was going down. Um, and my wife turns to me and she says, did you ever imagine that this is what your Saturday nights would be like? 
And I thought about it for a second. Because I'm 32, and it's Saturday night. If I was in my 20s, it'd be a different story. 20s, I'd just do whatever I want on Saturday night. Whee! You know, 10 o'clock is not sleeping time. 10 o'clock is partying time, right? Like, I go all the way into the night, no problem. Like, I would just do whatever I want. But I, I looked back and I said, no, I've never imagined this. But I'm really content right now. I'm content just sitting here with you and Hezzy and eating this ice cream with the cow with the weird udders and the sun setting. I don't, like this, I don't want to be anywhere else right now. Why? Because love transforms you. It transforms your interests, your identity, your habits, and your patterns. And if love for family can transform your Saturday night, <laughs> imagine what loving God would do for the entire state of your life. This is what Paul's talking about here. He's getting to the heart of something. And that's what needs to be addressed. Because Paul does not say the fruits of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit. It is singular. It's an all-encompassing package. This is why J.I. Packer, he's, he said... Holiness is the naturalness of a spiritually risen person. That holiness is the naturalness of a spiritually risen person. But how do we get there? Because it's so easy to be dominated by the flesh. And it's so hard to be ruled by the spirit. And Paul tells us in this text that in order for this transition to happen, we need the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to our third and final point today, and that is called mortify the flesh. Can we all say mortify? mortify? Mortify. What a great word that no one uses anymore. So how does this happen then? How do we make that change? How does the desire of our heart become chiefly found in God and start removing itself from the acts of the flesh? Because like we talked about before, brothers and sisters, if sin didn't feel good, we wouldn't even be here today. It wouldn't be a problem. But the problem is that sin feels good. It feels good to be dominated by the flesh. And so how do we do this? Well, first off, the Spirit will convict us, point out our sin. It'll bring awareness to a flaw that we have. It's like looking at your face in brilliant, unfiltered light. It will reveal its flaws, right? But, but at the same time, there needs to be a level of cooperation. Can we say cooperation? Because while the Spirit is engaged in this battle, Unless we work with the Spirit, nothing will happen. We need to work with the Spirit and through the power of the Spirit. But there needs to be a level of cooperation. Because when the Spirit goes to war with the flesh, there is no peace talk. There is no FF15. It is do or die, one or the other. The Spirit isn't like, well, you know what, it's been a long day. Let's just uh, just call it. No, it's a do or die situation. And what the Spirit wants to do, what the Spirit desires to do within each and every single believer is to put to death sinful nature. And what does our cooperation mean? It means that we can't 
fight the spirit and the spirit's desire to destroy the flesh. But how? How is that sinful nature destroyed? And what does it mean to cooperate with the spirit? In other words, if you are struggling today, brothers and sisters, how can you overcome? If you are struggling with the sin that has been plaguing you, how can you overcome? And Paul gives a clear and definite answer here. It's crucifixion. It's crucifixion. How do you kill the flesh? You crucify it. How do you kill sins? You crucify them. But what does that mean? I want to suggest a few things. The first is those who were crucified, they were damned to a shameful death. To be crucified on the cross was not a glorious death. It was reserved for the worst of the worst, and the whole process was shameful. Not only was it shameful because they stripped you of all your clothes and then proceeded to beat you, but it was also shameful because while you were naked, you were hanging on a cross for all to see. It was a public display, much like entertainment. And you might think that's strange, but if you think about our affinity for violent movies these days, it's perfectly reasonable. Now, the people would go to watch people die as a form of entertainment. And it was considered to be a shameful death. And isn't that true, brothers and sisters? I mean, if right now I could read your mind and expose all of your sins to this entire congregation, wouldn't you be ashamed? I know I would be. <laughs> I would be. No one wants to just hang there and for everyone to see as clear as the naked eye can tell. And yet, that's what the cross was. So what does it mean to crucify your sins there? It's to recognize that the sin in your life, that act of the flesh, is actually a shameful thing. It's not kosher. It's not cool. It's not normal. It's an actual problem. It's to admit that you have a problem, that this thing that I am committing, that I'm thinking, that I'm doing, it's an actual issue in my life, and it needs to be pointed out. It needs to be brought out into the light and examined in the light of day instead of hidden in darkness. It needs to be elevated and shown. I need to see it. But the cross was also a painful way to die. The cross was painful for a number of reasons. As I mentioned before, it's the beatings right up into it. But then the nails are driven into the hands, then they're driven into the feet, and they are lifted up. And as painful as that process is, the cross is also excruciatingly painful because of the difficulty of breathing when you are on the cross. Because when you're hanging there, breathing becomes cumbersome to the point where you need to lift yourself up. You need to push off your feet that are nailed in order to catch a breath of air. It was considered a very painful way to die. So what does it mean then to crucify our sin? Our sinful nature loves to abound in us. But we need to recognize that the process of killing it, it's going to be painful. That it's going to hurt. That it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. You know, I tell this to couples that have broken up that when you're in a relationship with someone, if you pretend like this is your heart and this is their heart, every beautiful moment that you have, it's like a stitch. Every conversation is another stitch and you're just stitching your hearts together closer and closer and closer. But do you know what a breakup is? 
A breakup is not a clean cut. A breakup is to take those two hearts and tear them from each other so that the flesh is broken open on the other side. That's why having a broken heart hurts so freaking much. But that's the process with sin. It's our hearts being attached more and more to the flesh, and they need to be ripped apart. And there's a painful process to it. And we need to recognize that, that it's not always going to be easy. But the cross, the cross was also a very gradual way to die. It wasn't a quick death. It wasn't an electric chair. It wasn't a firing squad. It wasn't lethal injection. Oftentimes, victims would linger on the cross for days, for days. Because again, it's not the bleed that typically killed you. It was just being exhausted from not being able to breathe that would kill you. It was a long death. And in the same way, when dealing with our sin, we need to recognize that there are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. There's no easy way out. If you've ever been addicted to something and tried to grab, your, pull yourself out of it, you know that feeling. There is no easy way out. It's gradual, and it's going to take time. It's going to take time. Recognize that. But death on the cross, crucifixion, was also final. That no one ever stayed on a cross alive. That one way or another, it was a death sentence. And what that tells us in our fight against sin is that God is not in a losing battle here. That while it is shameful, painful, and gradual, it is also final. That the fight is worth it because it is not a losing battle because God is not on the losing side. And the Spirit will and will overcome and there's hope in that there's hope in keeping in the fight knowing that there is a final outcome of sin being destroyed in your life and in this world but the problem is brothers and sisters somewhere on this path of crucifixion we like to administer cpr to our sins somewhere on this path. Maybe it was too painful, so you gave back in. Maybe it was taking too long, so you gave back in. Maybe it was, it was just too much, too shameful. You just didn't want to be exposed, and so you gave back in. And every time we do that, it's giving our sin new life. It's pumping fresh blood and fresh air back into the system. That so many times our sins will try to climb off that cross. But what Paul tells us here when he says to crucify the flesh, he means don't give it life. Do not administer life to it, but let it die. And we can do that because our Lord Jesus, while he experienced all of these things, the shameful way to die, the painful way to die, the gradual way to die, and the final way to die did not come off that cross. But he took it for us. And so that means something to us today that the crucifixion of our sins is entirely possible because of what Jesus has done for us. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He also tells us that while we are called to mortify the flesh, we are to go with the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Can we say in step? Now that word in step is a military term. It refers to soldiers who are in formation. 
And soldiers, when they're in formation, they don't just walk in formation, they also run in formation. They don't just walk together, soldiers will run together. And why does Paul say this here? Because Paul is not, ta- Paul is not writing a letter to Galatian. He's writing a letter to the Galatians, as in plural. He's not writing to one person in the church. He's writing to the churches in Galatia. And I believe that he uses this word in step very intentionally, knowing that it has military connotation, knowing that the image that it would conjure would be a regiment of troops. Because... While this process of crucifying, mortifying the flesh is not easy, it's a process that you are not alone in. Brothers and sisters, you were designed for community. You were made for relation. And the fight against sin is not a solo fight. There is no 1v9 here. It is full five on five. That's the way Paul wants us to do battle. Nuts together. Knowing that this journey is too difficult for us to try to take and tackle on our own. But we are to run together. And that means accountability. That means vulnerability, openness, and honestness about where we actually are as people. And sharing that with one another so that we can run together. Because we weren't meant to do it alone. Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God will do extraordinary things. But more often than not, it'll happen in ordinary ways. About connecting with those around you. About getting more and more involved with the community that God has placed you in. By making church more than just a place to go, but it's a place to be, a place to live, and a place to thrive. Making our conversations more than just the superficial and what happened yesterday and what's happening today, but what's actually happening in our lives. That type of intimacy can't be lost. And what Paul assures us is that when we do keep in line with the Spirit, when we do mortify the flesh, there is true freedom. And so brothers and sisters, let's explore that together this week. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your goodness. That while we are seemingly incapable against the flesh, your spirit empowers us and lifts us up. So that we don't have to be ruled by the acts of the flesh, but we can rule by the fruit of the spirit. And I pray that we would see that, not because we want the fruit simply, but we want the giver, and that is you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.